Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. And as we get started, I just want to take a moment to thank our church. Uh, I did this a few weeks ago, but I want to do it again. First Church, you guys have been so uh, gracious and generous to our family, and there's no way that we can ever thank you the way we'd like to for all the cards and encouraging words and gifts that you've given us. And so we've been here for about a month now in Oklahoma, and just you guys have made us feel so welcome and so hospitable. So just thank you so much uh, for my family, and we just appreciate you guys so much. Appreciate you guys watching out at Stone Canyon and Verdigris as well. And if you would, as we get started, put your hands together, and let's welcome one another to this conversation around God's Word. Well, something you may not know about me, and really there's no reason for you to know this, but I wear contacts. Without my contacts or glasses, I have pretty poor vision. And so what that means is every single year, I have to go to the eye doctor to get my eyes checked to make sure my prescription hasn't changed. And so a few years ago, I was at the eye doctor, and Allison came with me, and we were sitting there in the waiting room, and all of a sudden, I had this feeling like, Someone was watching me, somebody was staring at me. Ever have that feeling? And so Allison was sitting to the left of me, and I turned to my right, and a few chairs down in the waiting room was this elderly lady, and she was staring a hole through me. I mean, she was looking right at me. And so I kind of nodded and acknowledged her, smiled, and then I turned my head, but I still had this feeling like she was watching me. So I turned back around again, I said, uh, Hi, ma'am, do I know you? And she looked at me and goes, uh, no, I don't think so, but you remind me of somebody. You look like that guy that was in that movie with Ashley Judd and Morgan Freeman. He played an attorney, and I really liked him a lot. He was really good looking. Well, I wasn't exactly sure how to take that. I didn't even know that Morgan Freeman and Ashley Judd had been in a movie together. But I went home that afternoon, I Googled, up and Googled it, and sure enough, they were in a movie together called High Crimes. And the attorney that she was talking about is an actor named... Adam Scott. Now, like I said, I had never seen that movie, but I had seen him in the show Parks and Rec, and he's been in other movies as well. Here's a picture of Adam Scott if you want to look at it on the screen. And when I looked at his picture, I just thought, I don't look anything like that guy. I mean, I'm a lot better looking than him. I mean, don't you think, honestly? But I don't look anything like that guy. But apparently she thought I did look like him, and I didn't know what movie she was talking about, so I just took her compliment. She said, oh, you really do. You look just like him, and he's really good looking. Well, she and I talked for a few more minutes, and then her name was called. She went on back to see the doctor. Well, I'm sitting there, and I guess I had a smirk on my face, smiling. And Allison looked at me, and she said, what are you smiling about? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And she said, are you smiling about what that old lady said to you? And I was just like, uh, yeah, I guess so. It's nice to be complimented every now and then. And she said, that woman's old enough to be your grandma. Why are you so excited about her compliment? I was like, well, you know, it's just nice to hear that you're good looking every now and then. Hint, hint, you know. And so we're kind of uh, joking back and forth a little bit. And some more time passes. The lady comes back out and she sits down beside me again. And so by this time, I felt as if I knew her. And so I said, well, how'd it go? And she said, well, not too good. Haven't been to the eye doctor in a long time, and he told me that even with my glasses on, I'm as blind as a bat. <laughs> and Allison then said out loud for everyone in the waiting room to hear, oh, that explains so much. <laughs> a lack of vision can get you into trouble. Sometimes some serious trouble. Distorted vision, blurred vision, it can take you down a path you never wanted to go. It can lead you to a place that you never wanted to be. A lack of vision can get you into some trouble. And that's true not just for our physical vision, but it's also true on a spiritual level. 
See, I'm convinced that one of the greatest obstacles that God's church, uh, that is facing the church today, is a lack of vision. And what do I mean by vision exactly? I mean seeing the church as God sees it. Seeing our mission as God sees it. Helen Keller was once asked the question, is there anything worse than being blind? And she thought for a few moments and then responded, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus frustrated because he's speaking to God's people, at least people claim to be God's people, and they're not getting it. They're not understanding what he's saying. In fact, they're actually opposing him. And Jesus looks at them and says in Matthew 13 verse 15, your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. And I believe this is a theme that you will find all throughout Scripture. The Bible teaches one of the greatest hindrances to the mission of God is a lack of vision among His people. More so than persecution or hardship or suffering or pressure or stress that we might experience, nothing can stall the mission of God like a lack of vision among His people. That's why Proverbs 29 verse 18 says, If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. Oftentimes, what God wants for our lives, what God wants for the church is right in front of us, but for whatever reason, we don't have eyes that are willing to see. And I think that's the case for a man that we meet in Matthew chapter 22. And this is a man who actually represents a whole group of people known as the Pharisees. Now, we're not told this man's name, but the Bible lets us know enough about him that we can kind of piece together his story. See, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is being drilled with questions. And he's not being questioned by people who are actually investigating him or want to know more about his teachings. No, he's being drilled with questions by people who don't like him, people who want to try to trap him, who are testing him, who want to find fault with him. He's being asked questions by religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are on a different page than him. And so basically what's going on is the Pharisees, they try to trap Jesus with some trick questions, some gotcha questions. Jesus doesn't fall for them. He answers their questions perfectly. And so then the Sadducees, another religious group, they try to trap Jesus well, and so they throw a question in his direction, and still he handles it just fine. So the Pharisees, they regroup, and they go at Jesus from a different angle. And this time what they do is they take a different approach. They send in their ace. They send in their best guy. They send in an expert among experts to try to trap Jesus. This is a guy who probably is known for being a great debater. This is a guy who's quick on his feet. He's an expert in the law of Moses. And in Matthew 22 verse 34 it says... Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, you know, that one group of religious leaders, the Pharisees got together, they regrouped, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Now, before we get to the question that this expert in the law asked, let's talk about this expert a little bit. This guy, we might call him a religious lawyer. They picked him because he is the brightest of the bright. He is the best of the best. No one's been able to put Jesus in his place as of yet, and they want this guy to be the guy to do it. So I'm sure they picked him because he's smart, he's quick on his feet, he's well-spoken, he's educated. If we were talking about this guy in our terminology today, this would be the guy who made straight A's in Bible college. This would be the guy who got multiple graduate degrees from seminaries, from prestigious seminaries. This guy, if he were living in our day, he would be 
the quintessential church guy. And what I mean by that, he would be the guy who grew up in church. The guy who went to Sunday school every week. The guy who went to vacation Bible school every summer. The guy who was actively part of a youth group. The guy who went to church camps during the summer and CIY conferences and Christian conventions. He would have had more perfect attendance pins than anyone else. Did you guys' church used to do that? My home church did. If you had perfect attendance for a year, they gave you a pin or a little button thing that you wore. And there was this one guy in our home church. He had like a whole just line, a whole string of pins that he would wear every single Sunday to brag about his perfect attendance. I don't know if your church did that or not. I mean, back then I thought it was just normal. Now it's, I think it's a little bit weird. But anyway, churches used to do things like that. He would have had more perfect attendance pins than anybody else. This is your quintessential church guy, your quintessential religious guy. And the thing is, I can identify with him. You see, something you need to know about me, something else you need to know about me, <laughs> is I am a Buick, a brought-up-in-church kid. I'm a Buick, brought-up-in-church kid. Not sure if you're familiar with that term or not, but that's me. From the time I was a baby, brought up in church. I went to Sunday school every single week. My parents were to church. My grandparents on both sides went to church. I am, I was a brought-up-in-church kid. My family went to vacation Bible school every single summer. In fact, my mom was our VBS coordinator. I went to church camps during the summer. I attended CIY conventions. I went to Christian conferences. I even went on to Bible college after I graduated high school. And then after Bible college, I went on to different seminaries, and I got multiple different graduate degrees and things like theology and church history and Christian leadership, whatever that means. I went on, I did just that. I am your quintessential brought-up-in-church kid. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. There's nothing wrong with anything that I just mentioned. In fact, I'm very grateful for the Christian foundation that my family gave me. I'm very grateful for what my home church taught me. I'm very grateful for that foundation. There's nothing wrong with anything that I just said. There's nothing wrong with being a brought-up-in-church kid. But here's the danger in being a brought-up-in-church kid. Over time, you can learn the secret to faking it. Over time, you can learn how to play a part. I knew all the church rules. I knew all the church expectations. I knew how to look like a church guy, even though I wasn't following Jesus like I should have been. I had seasons in my life where I was just wearing a religious mask. Now, that may bother you to hear that coming from your preacher. It may make you feel uncomfortable but I just want to let you know something. I'm a real guy, and I want to be real with you. Years ago, I had somebody walk up to me after one of my sermons, and it was an older man that I respect a whole lot, and he looked at me and he said, you know, Chad, let me give you some advice. You gave a good message today, but let me give you some advice. You're a young preacher, and I've been in church a long time. He said, you need to use less self-disclosure in your messages. Because if the people that you're preaching to think that you're just as weak as they are, if they think that you struggle with the same stuff they struggle with, then you're going to lose respect. And I listened to what he had to say because I knew he meant well. And I respected this guy. And the thing is, I've heard other preachers say that people have come to them and said the same thing. So I listened to what this man had to say. And that's what some preachers want, honestly. Some preachers want to stand up every Sunday and act like they have it all together. They want to stand up and act like they're close to perfect. And they can't be perfect because then they'd be Jesus, but they want to act like they're as close as they can possibly get. 
I know that's what some preachers want, but I just want to let you know something. That's not me. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that he doesn't deserve to be a servant of Christ. And look at what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. But because of God's grace, I am what I am, and His grace was not wasted on me. Guys, that's me. I can identify with Paul. I never want to give the impression that I deserve to be on this platform. I never want to give the impression that I deserve to preach or proclaim God's word because I don't. I don't deserve to be a leader in God's church. I don't even deserve to be a member of God's church. I don't deserve to be part of God's family. I don't deserve to be called a child of God. But by the grace of God, I stand here before you today. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's grace has not been wasted on me. It's changed me. And it continues to change me. And I pray it changes me every single day. And so like Paul, I just want to be real with you. And I want to let you know from experience, I know what it's like to wear a religious mask. I've had seasons and times in my life where I have pretended to be something that I'm not. And I dare say everyone listening to me in this room today, everyone listening at one of our campuses today, you could probably say the same thing. We've all worn masks before. Let me just give you an example. How many of you can identify with this? It's Sunday morning, and your family's getting ready for church, and you're all running late, and so dad's hollering because you're going to be late for church. Even if you left right now, you're still going to be late. So come on, we got to get in the minivan. we got to go. And mom's still getting dressed, and the kids are trying to find a Pop-Tart to grab with them because they haven't had breakfast yet. And then all of a sudden, you get ready in the car, and one of the kids, you know, he's missing a shoe, so you got to run back in and get the shoe. And so everybody's just kind of frazzled and all stressed out, but you finally get in the minivan, and you take off. And dad, he's flying down the road trying to get there on time he's breaking the law to get to church you know he's flying down the road to get there on time speeding and mom's putting makeup on in the mirror the kids are fighting in the back and dad's saying hush we're got to be in a good mood we're on our way to church you know and so dad's getting more and more frustrated because there's a slow car in front of him you know one of those sunday drivers a farmer looking at the fields you know as he goes by and dad's getting more and more frustrated and you finally arrive at church and everybody's all upset everybody's at each other's throats but you get out of the car and you see another family that goes to church with you and they look at you and they say hey how are you guys and dad looks at them and oh we're rejoicing in the Lord good to see you brother you know and you put your Christian face on right your church face on anybody identify with that I <laughs> growing up we had mornings just like that fortunately I leave before the rest of my family now to get here so I don't know what they do on the way to church but we've probably all been there right and that can be funny but wearing a mask like that can also be really, really dangerous. Back to our passage, this guy, he's a Buick. Or should I say a Buisk? I know it's not a word, but he's a brought up in synagogue kid because they didn't have the church just yet. But he's grown up around God his entire life. He's devoted his life to God's service. He's a Pharisee. And he's an expert in the law. No one knows the law, God's law, better than him. And yet, his heart seems to be far from God. He doesn't seem to share the heart of the lawgiver. And the reason why we know that is because 
Even though he looks religious on the outside, he's opposing Jesus in this moment, and Jesus is God. He's testing Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus. And the reason why he's trying to trap Jesus is because he doesn't like what Jesus is teaching. The tone of the passage reveals that this man and the group of Pharisees he represents, they're not just questioning Jesus to find out more information about him. They don't like Jesus. They don't like what he's teaching, and they're trying to prove once and for all that this Jesus guy is a phony, that he's a fake, he's not from God. They want to prove that their agenda is God's agenda, and whatever this Jesus guy is saying, it's not from God. These Pharisees, they claim to be serving God, but yet we find out their hearts are far from God's heart. And you know, when I was younger and I would read through the Gospels and I would get to these different sections of the Bible when the Pharisees were opposing Jesus or trying to trap Jesus, I would get mad at them. You know, I'd be like, what are you guys doing? You all know the Bible better than anybody. Why are you guys doing this? Why don't you get it? Why don't you understand what God wants for the world? And I would just get mad at them. And you know what? As I've spiritually matured over the years, I don't get mad at the Pharisees anymore. I don't get frustrated with them. I don't point the finger at them. Instead, I just feel sorry for them. They make me sad. Because I don't think they intentionally wanted to oppose God. Most of them, at least. I just think that somewhere along the way, their vision for what God wanted got distorted. The lines were blurred. And somewhere along the way, they lost sight of God's mission for the world. Somewhere along the way, they lost sight of God's heart. And remember what I said a second ago, a lack of vision gets us into trouble. And that's why this expert in the law asked Jesus the question he asked. It's found in verse 36 of Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now that's a tricky question. That's one of those gotcha questions because an unwise answer could expose Jesus to the charge of not valuing a certain aspect of God's law. See, how is it that you say that one command is any greater than another when they all come from God, right? And this is what the Pharisees had done. They had taken the time to divide up the law of Moses and they had calculated that there were 613 separate commands in the law of Moses. I mean, they had too much time on their hands, but they went through and they counted every single command that was in the law of Moses and then they would sit around and they would debate which one is the greatest command and here's the thing the Pharisees they weren't all on the same page they couldn't come to an agreement of which command was the greatest and that's why they would sit around and debate it all the time and so this was the perfect question to try to get Jesus because no matter how he answered they would say well hey you're devaluing this other command and that one's from God if Jesus' response implied that one commandment was more important than another, it would provide the Pharisees with sufficient grounds to criticize and even condemn him. And yet, when Jesus is asked this question, he doesn't seem to blink an eye. He doesn't seem to even hesitate. He just responds as if this is a pretty simple answer. Verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now you need to know something else about me. I know I'm telling you a whole lot about me this morning. And I apologize if you don't like that. But something else you need to know about me 
is that I love the church. I love the local church. I really do. And the reason why I love the church is because Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church, the Bible says. The church is called the bride of Christ. And I get that metaphor. I've been in ministry long enough. I've been in ministry, preaching ministry now for 15 years. And so over 15 years, I've developed pretty thick skin. You have to have thick skin to be in ministry that long. It just kind of happens. I thought when I went into ministry that I had thick skin. I didn't know what thick skin was, honestly. But over time, that has developed. And so you can talk about me if you want to. I've got broad shoulders. I can take it. I can handle it. But you better not talk about my bride. You better not talk about Allison. Because I'll defend her. I'll fight for her. Talk about me all you want to. You better not talk about Allison. She's my bride. You don't mess with her. The church is called Jesus' bride. And he'll defend the church. He loves the church. He even died for the church. And I believe with all of my heart, this is not preacher talk. This is not an embellished statement. I believe with all of my heart that the local church is the world's last hope. And the reason why I believe that is because God has entrusted His mission to us. We are the vehicle God has chosen to bring His Son to the world. And if we don't do what we're called to do, the world's going to suffer because of it. Not only that, people are going to die and go to hell because of it. Let's be real for a second. I believe in the church with all of my heart. I believe the church is the world's last hope. But... I also know how easy it is sometimes to lose sight of what really matters in the church. Sometimes when I sit in my church office, I will push my chair back from my desk and I'll look out the window and I'll think about all the conflict I hear in today's church, you know, the church in America. And I hear about all of the issues that are being debated and the way people are doing church and the different ways that churches are structured. And I even think about some of the complaints that I've heard in church during my time in ministry. And I just think about all the stuff going on in the church today. And I just think, I just wonder, has the American church complicated the mission that Jesus intended to be so simple? Jesus is asked, out of all the commands, which is the best one? Which is the greatest? Narrow it down for us, Jesus. And Jesus, without hesitation, responds, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, to love God with your entire being. That is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in Mark's gospel, we're looking at Matthew's this morning, but Mark also tells of this conversation between Jesus and this religious expert. And in Mark's gospel, he lets us know that after Jesus responded this way, gave this answer, that the Pharisees were left speechless. In fact, it says in Mark 12, 34, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Why? It wasn't just because Jesus had given a good answer. And it wasn't just because Jesus had given the right answer. It's the deeper meaning behind what Jesus had just said. See, yes, Jesus quoted two literal commands from the Old Testament. Yes, he quoted Deuteronomy 6.5, which says to love God with your entire being. And yes, he quoted Leviticus 19.18, which says to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus' response was bigger than just quoting a couple of choice commands from the Old Testament. These two commandments that Jesus quoted... They cover the full extent of God's law. In other words, every single command 
falls under one of these two commands. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 22, 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, to keep these two commands is to fulfill the entire law. But to miss these two commands, to love God and love people, is to miss the heart of God. And what's the key word that's found in both of these commands? It's the word love, right? But you see, what love does is love goes behind all the outward things that the law commands, all the religious rituals, all the religious traditions. It goes behind those things and it captures the attitude and the motive for doing them. Let me put it this way. To love is to fulfill God's law. To love God and to love people as He has loved us is to fulfill God's law. I know that sounds simple, but I think that's what Jesus is getting at. I think that's the point, honestly. Because Jesus knows how easy it is for us to get so caught up in the outward stuff you know, just coming to church and showing up and singing the songs and taking communion and not falling asleep during the sermon and getting your $3 worth of God and going home and feeling good about yourself. Jesus knows how easy it is for us just to focus on the outward stuff and think, hey, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And then miss God's heart. See, the mission of God's people can be summed up in two phrases. Love God love people. I like to say it like this, that the church's purpose is to love Jesus and to love like Jesus. Our purpose is to love Jesus with everything we have, our entire being, and then to love others as he has loved us, to love like Jesus. That's what the church is all about. That's why we were established. That's why we're here on this earth, to love Jesus and to love like Jesus. That's putting first things first. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Guys, it doesn't matter how big our building is. It doesn't matter how large our budget is. It doesn't matter what metrics we establish for church growth. It doesn't matter what programs we have. It doesn't matter what activities we schedule. It doesn't matter what we wear. It doesn't matter what the coffee on the cafe tastes like. If we are not loving Jesus and loving like Jesus, we are not fulfilling the mission of God. And everything else we do is meaningless. Why do you think Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 2 through 3, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is what the church is built upon. Now, occasionally, I will have someone come to me and they will say, Chad, we think you preach too much, you teach too much on love. And then the next statement they make, it's always the same, or nine times out of ten, the next statement that they will say is this, we want to get into the deeper stuff. Now, let me just ask, is there any subject that is deeper, that is greater than the love of our God? Guys, I think we can spend a lifetime talking about the love of God and still not scratch the surface of that subject. The love of God is the deep stuff. 
And a lot of times the reason why the church isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing is because we've missed that. We've missed the very foundation of who we're supposed to be. To love Jesus and to love like Jesus. Jesus is letting us know that the quality and the quantity of our love, our love for God and our love for others, will prove to the world that we are who we say we are. We are followers of His. And so this morning, what I want us to do as a church is I want us, figuratively speaking, to push the chairs back from our desk, look out the window for a second, examine ourselves, and just ask, have we lost sight of what really matters? Has the American church complicated the mission that Jesus intended to be so simple. When I was a freshman in Bible college, I had a buddy come to me one afternoon and say, hey, my grandparents, they go to this church that's like an hour and a half, two hours away, and they're going to have this special service, try to invite their entire community, and they wanted a good guest speaker, and I recommended you. Would you care to come speak at my grandparents' church? I was like, well, sure, yeah, I'll do that. I, I love to preach. Sure, when is it? So we scheduled it, and we waited for that day to come around, and sure enough, a few weeks passed, and it came, and so my buddy and I, we drove to his grandparents' church about an hour and a half, two hours away from our campus, so we get there, and we arrive in the parking lot, and there wasn't anyone in the parking lot. I mean, literally, there wasn't a car in the parking lot but ours, and we were like 30 minutes uh, before it's time for church to start. And I thought, well, this is kind of weird, but it was a warm day, so we got out of the car, and we looked at one another, talked for a few minutes, and then my buddy said, well, you know, I used to come to church some, visit with my grandparents, and I remember they never locked the doors to this church. I bet you the church was unlocked. And I was just like, well, let's try it. So we went to the front door, turned the knob, sure enough, church was unlocked. So we went on in, turned on the lights, and we looked around. Nobody was there, so we went into the auditorium, and they had pews in there, kind of like this one, a little bit bigger than this one, but still, they look very similar to this one. And so we sat down in a pew. I sat, on, uh, I sat in the very back pew. He sat in the pew in front of me, and we just sat there, and we talked, and we waited for people to show up. Some time passed. We were about five minutes until it was time for church to start, and still no one had come, had no one had shown up, and then we heard the back door open. And this elderly gentleman walked in. Now, I'm sitting in the back pew, so I'm right by the back door. So this, el this elderly gentleman walked in, and he walked straight up to my pew, and so I stood up, and I put my hand down. I said, hey, sir, I'm Chad Broaddus. I'm here to speak tonight. I'm excited to be here. And he looked at me. He didn't smile. He just pointed. He pointed to the pew where I was sitting, and he said, son, you're in my seat. And I looked at him, and I thought, you're the only one here. There are a hundred open seats in this building right now. You've got to be kidding me. And he looked at me, you're in my seat. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. So I kind of moved down a little bit in the pew so he could sit down. I thought, well, if he's the only one shows up, I'll talk to him for a little bit, you know. And so I moved on down. He said, oh, no, don't sit there. That's where Bill sits if he shows up tonight. And I was like, okay, didn't know we had, you know, reserved seats. That's fine. And so I left the pew. I didn't want to take someone else's seat. And I stood there for a minute. And I talked to him. And as we talked, he just interrupted me right in the middle of our conversation. And he goes, how old are you anyway? And I said, well, I'm a freshman at Bible college. And he said, well, if I'd have known they were sending a kid to preach, I would not have shown up tonight. I guarantee there's nothing you can tell me that I haven't heard before. And I wanted to say, sir, thank you so much for your Christian hospitality. Thank you so much for the love that you're showing me right now. I feel so welcomed in this place. But I didn't do that. I just smiled and I shook his hand. And then I kind of walked away. And a few more people did show up. Uh, we actually started the service about 10 minutes after it was supposed to start because we waited on certain people to get there. <laughs> I know that no other church people ever run late. 
late. But still, this church actually waited for people to get there before they started. And there were maybe like two dozen people that showed up. It wasn't a huge crowd, but at least there were people there for me to preach to. And so it got time for the service to start. Somebody said, okay, everybody's here is coming. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. So I go and I take a seat in a pew and I wait for the time to come around for me to preach. And so I, I sit down and about that time, a little older lady who was sitting in the same pew as me leaned over and she said, uh, our song leader didn't show up tonight. You need to get up there and lead us in some singing. And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, I don't sing. And she goes, that's okay. Our song leader doesn't sing either. Get up there and lead us in some singing. I was just like, I don't have anything prepared. And she was like, he doesn't either. He just gets up there and asks what hymns we want to sing for the night. Just get up there and pick some hymns. I was like, okay, I guess I can. So I got up. I went to the front. I grabbed the hymn book and Okay, what song would you want to sing? And somebody shouted out a number. I turned. I didn't know that hymn. I was like, nope, I'm not singing that one. Okay, what's, what's another hymn? And so finally we found one that everyone knew. And I led singing. Well, actually, I really didn't lead singing. I kind of gave two solos because no one else sang in the entire place. It was just me up there. Thank goodness they had a piano player. So I gave two solos, and then it was time for me to preach. And I got up to the platform uh, to speak, and they did have a little lapel mic for me. You know, not one of these ear mics, but a lapel mic. So I pinned it to my shirt and got ready to preach, and it wasn't on. And somebody sitting in the back of the auditorium, sitting in a pew, yells out at me and goes, Hey, buddy, your mic's not on. Now, I already started my sermon, and he yells this out, so it kind of caught me off guard, but I pulled out my battery pack, and I'm flipping the little switch, and the light's not coming on. And then somebody else yells out from another pew, Oh, yeah, that battery went dead last week. I meant to put a new one in there, a new battery. Uh, there's one on the back table. Somebody bring that boy a battery. And I'm still standing, like, what do I do, you know? And nobody moves. They all just stay seated in their pews. They just sit there. And so I wait for a few more seconds. And then the guy who started the conversation said he couldn't hear me. He yelled back out and goes, uh, Hey, uh, boy, why don't you just walk to the back and get you a battery and put it in there yourself? So I was like, am I in the twilight zone? I mean, what's going on here? But I did what the guy told me to do. I went back to the back and found the battery on the back table just where the guy said it was. I put it in my battery pack and I got up to preach. And when I restarted my sermon at that point, it was the worst sermon I'd ever preached. I mean, it was just terrible. It was bad with all that going on. And seriously, I was just trying to rush through it because I was losing the audience. They were dropping like flies. I mean, they were falling asleep left and right. They were not with me at all. I'm ditching illustrations. You know, I'm ditching points. I'm just trying to get finished. And so I finally got to the end of the message. And I came down from the platform because I was done. And I went to go sit down in a pew again. And as I was getting ready to sit down, and from the back of the room, my buddy was back there with his grandpa and grandma who attended that church. And by the way, his grandparents were extremely nice. They were the only people in the entire building that were nice to me that night. But still, they were extremely sweet and nice. And my buddy's grandpa yelled out at me and goes, not yelled out, he just kind of like whispered loudly. He wasn't as rude, but he whispered loudly, do an invitation time. And I'm like, for who? Who exactly do you want me to do an invitation for? Sleepy Sleeperson over here? I mean, what are, you th what are you thinking? But I did an invitation time. Actually, I led another solo. I gave another solo, you know. And then nobody came forward, and I went to the back to shake hands. And on the way out the door, people were walking out, and everybody was saying, oh, good sermon, good sermon. Uh, people lie when they say that. I know that, but good sermon, good sermon. And then this sweet-looking old lady walked up to me. I mean, she looked really sweet. I just knew she was going to say something encouraging to me. Boy, did she have me fooled. She walked up to me, and she said, something you said tonight really offended me. 
It's like, I didn't talk about anything controversial tonight. What, you know, I'm like, what in the world did I say that offended her? And she looked at me and she said, you made the statement that God doesn't want us to just be pew setters, that he wants us to get out and serve. Well, I want to let you know something. I did my time serving, and now I'm a proud pew setter. And I looked at her kind of odd, and she said, and listen, young man, if it wasn't for this pew setter, you probably wouldn't get paid tonight. And she walked on past me. You ever feel just kind of numb? You ever feel like, did this really just happen? And I'm just kind of standing there like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And my buddy and his grandparents again, who were very sweet, came up to me and they said, hey, you want to go grab a bite to eat? There's a diner across the street. So we went across the street and we ordered food and we're sitting there talking and and my, uh, my buddy's grandparents were telling me all these stories about what used to go on in that church years ago, about how the church used to be packed, and they used to have all these programs and activities, and there used to be young people that went there, and families that went there. And they told me this one story about a revival they had, that it was so full, they had to open up the windows, and people were leaning in the windows from the outside to listen to what the preacher had to say. They were telling me all these stories from years gone by. And then our waiter comes back to the table, and I he could tell that I wasn't from around there, small town. And he said, so what brings you to this area? And I was like, well, I was preaching at that church just across the street. And he said, oh, yeah, I forget there's a church over there. I wasn't even sure if it was still open, if anybody still went there. And I remember on the way home talking to my buddy, and I just said, is this what Jesus died for? Did Jesus die so that we could just sit around? In pews? And I have prayed over and over and over again since that night. God never let my faith be minimized to sitting in a pew on a Sunday. And yet, that's the case for so many people in our church culture today. And many churches act like that's acceptable. Guys, you need to know something about me. You need to know my heart. Years ago, I realized that if my life can't be described in two statements, love Jesus, love like Jesus, then everything else I do is a waste. Everything else I do is empty. Everything else I do is meaningless. And it's my goal every single year, I want to fall in love with Jesus in a way like I never had before. And every single year, I want to share his love with more people than I did the year before. And I wonder if in today's church, if we need to recapture what really matters to God, if we need to recapture His vision. I wonder if as a church today, first church, we need to capture God's vision in a way like we never have before. Because it starts with asking three questions. The first one's this, does my love for Jesus consume my life? With all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, do I love Him? Am I living the life that I'm inviting other people to live? The second question is, am I loving the people God loves? Am I proving daily that I am who I say I am because of the love that I'm showing other people? Am I noticing those that Jesus would notice? Am I sharing his love with them? And third, are we satisfied? As a church, have we become satisfied with the extent of our love, with the depth of our love? Because I believe we shouldn't be satisfied until every single person we know knows that they have a chance to have a fresh start with God. We shouldn't be satisfied until every single person we know knows that there is forgiveness available through Jesus Christ. That there is a chance at a new life and transformation through Jesus Christ. See, I'm at the place right now where I believe that there are more people 
willing to hear the gospel than who are willing to share it. Because it's so easy for us just to go through the motions and do the outward stuff, but miss the heart of God, not do it for the right reason. Eugene Peterson is a Christian author, and you may agree or disagree with all of his beliefs and what he teaches. That's not the point of what I'm getting ready to tell you, but he's most well known for his translation, or his paraphrase of the Bible, known as The Message. And in one of his books, he writes about an experience he had as a kid. Uh, There's this bully that used to pick on the neighborhood kids named Garrison, and this went on for some time until one day Eugene Peterson stood up to this bully. And listen to what he writes. He said, I was with my neighborhood friends one day, seven or eight of us, when Garrison caught up with us again and started in on me this time, jabbing and taunting, working himself up to the main event. He had an audience, and that helped. He always did better with an audience. But that's when it happened. Totally uncalculated, totally out of character, something snapped within me. For just a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise at his, I realized that I was stronger than he was. So I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me, at my mercy. This was too good to be true. So then I did what he did to me. I punched him, and it felt good. So I punched him again. And by this time, all the other neighborhood kids, they were cheering me on. So I hit him again. And right then, my Christian training reasserted itself. So I said to Garrison, as I sat on top of him, Repent and ask Jesus for forgiveness. (laughs) He wouldn't say it. So I punched him again and said, Repent and ask Jesus for forgiveness. He still wouldn't say it. So I hit him again. And by the third time, Garrison repented of all of his sins. And then Peterson jokingly writes, Garrison was the first person I ever witnessed to. (laughs) Sometimes we can think we're doing God's work and yet be far, far from his heart. That's why I love how this conversation with this legal expert ends. In Mark's version of this, in Mark chapter 12, says that after Jesus gave this answer, love God, love people, verse 32 says in Mark chapter 12, well said, teacher, this is the religious expert, well said, teacher, to love God with all of your heart and with all of your understanding and with all of your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's as if a life bulb comes on for this religious leader. He gets it. It's not about all the external stuff if your heart's not right. The key to following God is loving God with your entire being and loving people as he has loved you. This guy starts to get it and so you know what Jesus says to him? Verse 34 of Mark 12. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you're getting it. You're on the right path now. I want us to examine ourselves as a church this morning. I want you to examine yourself as an individual this morning. How far are we from the kingdom of God? Because if we can't describe our lives in two statements, love Jesus, love light Jesus, if we can't describe our church with two statements, love Jesus, love light Jesus, then we're not fulfilling the mission that God has given to us. That's what it's all about. Have you become satisfied with the death of your love? Has our church become content with the extent of our love? How far are we today from the kingdom of God? Guys, it is my prayer that through us, through First Church, that God unleashes a revolution of love on the 918. But in order for that to happen, it starts with us Loving Jesus with everything we are and loving people as he has loved us. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made and this time we've had to meet together as your people in this place and at all of our campuses. And Father, we just pray that we keep first things first, that we don't lose sight of what really matters, but Father, that we do what's most important, and that's loving you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors as you have loved us. We thank you for your love, and we just want to share that with more people every single day. In the name of Jesus, I lift up this prayer. Amen.